Section 20 of Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, Volume 1, by John Lloyd Steffens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Before leaving, I roused myself for an excursion. The window of my room opened upon the volcano of Izalco. All day I heard, at short intervals, the eruptions of the burning mountain, and at night saw the column of flame bursting from the crater, and streams of fire rolling down its side. Fortunately, Mr. Blackburn, a Scotch merchant, for many years resident in Peru, arrived and agreed to accompany me. The next morning before five o'clock we were in the saddle. At the distance of a mile we forded the Rio Grande, here a wild river, and riding through a rich country in half an hour reached the Indian village of Naguisal, a lovely spot, and literally a forest of fruits and flowers. Large trees were perfectly covered with red, and at every step we could pluck fruit. Interspersed among these beautiful trees were the miserable huts of Indians, and lying on the ground, or at some lazy work, were the miserable Indians themselves. Continuing another league through the same rich country, we rose upon a table of land from which, looking back, we saw an immense plain, wooded and extending to the shore, and beyond, the boundless waters of the Pacific. Before us, at the extreme end of a long street, was the church of Izalco, standing out in strong relief against the base of the volcano, which at that moment, with a loud report like the rolling of thunder, threw in the air a column of black smoke and ashes, lighted by a single flash of flame. With difficulty we obtained a guide, but he was so tipsy that he could scarcely guide himself along a straight street, and he would not go till the next day, as he said it was so late that we should be caught on the mountain at night, and that it was full of tigers. In the meantime, the daughter of our host found another, and stowing four green coconuts in his alforgas, we set out. Soon we came out upon an open plain, and without a bush to obstruct the view, saw on our left the whole volcano from its base to its top. It rose from near the foot of a mountain to a height perhaps of three thousand feet, its sides brown and barren, and all around for miles the earth was covered with lava. Being in a state of eruption, it was impossible to ascend it, but behind it is a higher mountain, which commands a view of the burning crater. The whole volcano was in full sight, spouting into the air a column of black smoke and an immense body of stones, while the earth shook under our feet. Crossing the plain, we commenced ascending the mountain. At eleven o'clock we sat down by the bank of a beautiful stream to breakfast. My companion had made abundant provision, and for the first time since I left Guatemala I felt the keenness of returning appetite. In half an hour we mounted, and soon after twelve o'clock entered the woods, having a very steep ascent by a faint path, which we soon lost altogether. Our guide changed his direction several times, and at length got lost, tied his horse, and left us to wait while he searched the way. 
we knew that we were near the volcano for the explosions sounded like the deep mutterings of dreadful thunder shut up as we were in the woods these reports were awful our horses snorted with terror and the mountain quaked beneath our feet our guide returned and in a few minutes we came out suddenly upon an open point higher than the top of the volcano commanding a view of the interior of the crater and so near it that we saw the huge stones as they separated in the air and fell pattering around the sides of the volcano in a few minutes our clothes were white with ashes which fell around us with a noise like the sprinkling of rain the crater had three orifices one of which was inactive another emitted constantly a rich blue smoke and after a report deep in the huge throat of the third appeared a light blue vapor and then a mass of thick black smoke whirling and struggling out in enormous wreaths and rising in a dark majestic column lighted for a moment by a sheet of flame and when the smoke dispersed the atmosphere was darkened by a shower of stones and ashes this over a moment of stillness followed and then another report and eruption and these continued regularly at intervals as our guide said of exactly five minutes and really he was not much out of the way the sight was fearfully grand we refreshed ourselves with a draught of coconut milk thought how this grandeur would be heightened when the stillness and darkness of night were interrupted by the noise and flame and forthwith resolved to sleep upon the mountain the cura of zonzonate still in the vigor of life told me that he remembered when the ground on which this volcano stands had nothing to distinguish it from any other spot around in seventeen ninety eight a small orifice was discovered puffing out small quantities of dust and pebbles he was then living at izalco and as a boy was in the habit of going to look at it and he had watched it and marked its increase from year to year until it had grown into what it is now captain de novelle told me he could observe from the sea that it had grown greatly within the last two years two years before its light could not be seen at night on the other side of the mountain on which i stood night and day it forces up stones from the bowels of the earth spouts them into the air and receives them upon its sides every day it is increasing and probably it will continue to do so until the inward fires die or by some violent convulsion the whole is rent to atoms old travelers are not precluded occasional bursts of enthusiasm but they cannot keep it up long in about an hour we began to be critical and even captious some eruptions were better than others and some were comparatively small affairs in this frame of mind we summed up our want of comforts for passing the night on the mountain and determined to return mr blackburn and i thought that we could avoid the circuit of the mountain by descending directly to the base of the volcano and crossing it reached the camino real but our guide said it was a tempting of providence and refused to accompany us we had a very steep descent on foot 
and in some places our horses slid down on their haunches an immense bed of lava stopped in its rolling course by the side of the mountain filled up the wide space between us and the base of the volcano we stepped directly upon this black and frightful bed but we had great difficulty in making our horses follow the lava lay in rolls as irregular as the waves of the sea sharp rough and with huge chasms difficult for us and dangerous for the horses with great labor we dragged them to the base and around the side of the volcano massive stones hurled into the air fell and rolled down the sides so near that we dared not venture further we were afraid of breaking our horses legs in the holes into which they were constantly falling and turned back on the lofty point from which we had looked down into the crater of the volcano sat our guide gazing and as we could imagine laughing at us we toiled back across the bed of lava and up the side of the mountain and when we reached the top both my horse and i were almost exhausted fortunately the road home was downhill it was long after dark when we passed the foot of the mountain and came out upon the plain every burst of the volcano sent forth a pillar of fire in four places were steady fires and in one a stream of fire was rolling down its side at eleven o'clock we reached zonzonate besides toiling around the base of the volcano having ridden upward of fifty miles and such had been the interest of the day's work that though my first effort i never suffered from it the arrangements for my voyage down the pacific were soon made the servant to whom i referred was a native of costa rica then on his way home after a long absence with a cargo of merchandise belonging to himself he was a tall good-looking fellow dressed in a guatemala jacket or coton a pair of mexican leather trousers with buttons down the sides and a steeple-crowned broad-brimmed drab wool hat altogether far superior to any servant i saw in the country and i think if it had not been for him i should not have undertaken the journey the reader will perhaps be shocked to hear that his name was jesus pronounced in spanish jesus h e z o o s by which latter appellation to avoid what might be considered profanity i shall hereafter call him chapter sixteen sickness and mutiny illness of captain j critical situation rough nursing a countryman in trouble dolphins succession of volcanoes gulf of nicoya harbor of caldera another countryman another patient hacienda of san felipe mountain of aguacate zillenthal patent self-acting cold amalgamation machine gold mines view from the mountain top on monday the twenty-second of january two hours before daylight we started for the port jesus led the way carrying before him all my luggage rolled up in a baquette being simply a cowhide after the fashion of the country at daylight we heard behind us the clattering of horses hoofs 
and don manuel de aguila with his two sons overtook us before the freshness of the morning was past we reached the port and rode up to the old hut which i had hoped never to see again the hammock was swinging in the same place the miserable rancho seemed destined to be the abode of sickness in one corner lay senor de iriarte my captain exhausted by a night of fever and unable to sail that day dr driven was again at the port he had not yet disembarked his machinery in fact the work was suspended by a mutiny on board the english brig the ringleader of which as the doctor complained to me was an american i passed the day on the seashore in one place a little above high water mark almost washed by the waves were rude wooden crosses marking the graves of unhappy sailors who had died far from their homes returning i found at the hut captain jay of the english brig who also complained to me of the american sailor the captain was a young man making his first voyage as master his wife whom he had married a week before sailing accompanied him he had had a disastrous voyage of eight months from london in doubling cape horn his crew were all frostbitten and his spars carried away with only one man on deck he had worked up to guayaquil where he incurred great loss of time and money in making repairs and shipped an entirely new crew at acajutla he found that his boats were not sufficient to land the doctor's machinery and was obliged to wait until a raft could be constructed in the meantime his crew mutinied and part of them refused to work his wife was then at the doctor's hacienda and i noticed that while writing her a note with pencil his sunburned face was pale and large drops of perspiration stood on his forehead soon after he threw himself into the hammock and as i thought fell asleep but in a few minutes i saw the hammock shake and remembering my own shaking there thought it was at its old tricks of giving people the fever and ague but very soon i saw that the poor captain was in convulsions excepting captain diariarte who was lying against the wall perfectly helpless i was the only man in the hut and as there was danger of his throwing himself out of the hammock i endeavored to hold him in but with one convulsive effort he threw me to the other side of the hut and hung over the side of the hammock with one hand entangled in the cords and his head almost touching the ground the old woman said that the devil had taken possession of him and ran out of doors screaming fortunately this brought in a man whom i had not seen before mr warburton an engineer who had come out to set up the machinery and who was himself a machine of many horsepower having a pair of shoulders that seemed constructed expressly for holding men in convulsions at first he was so shocked that he did not know what to do i told him that the captain was to be held whereupon opening his powerful arms he closed them around the captains with the force of a hydraulic press turning the legs over to me these legs were a pair of the sturdiest that ever supported a human body and i verily believe 
that if the feet had once touched my ribs they would have sent me through the wall of the hut watching my opportunity i wound the hammock around his legs and my arms around the hammock in the meantime he broke loose from mr warburton's hug who taking the hint from me doubled his part in with the folds of the hammock and gave his clinch from the outside the captain struggled and worming like a gigantic snake slipped his head out of the top of the hammock and twisted the cords around his neck so that we were afraid of his strangling himself we were in utter despair when two of his sailors rushed in who being at home with ropes extricated his head shoved him back into the hammock wrapped it around him as before and i withdrew completely exhausted the two recruits were tom a regular tar of about forty and the cook a black man and particular friend of tom who called him darky tom undertook the whole direction of securing the captain and though dr driven and several indians came in tom's voice was the only one heard and addressed only to darky stand by his legs darky hold fast darky steady darky but altogether could not hold him turning on his face and doubling himself inside he braced his back and drove both legs through the hammock striking his feet violently against the ground his whole body passed through his struggles were dreadful suddenly the mass of bodies on the floor rolled against captain diariarte's bed which broke down with a crash and with a fever upon him he was obliged to scramble out of the way in the interval of one of the most violent struggles we heard a strange idiotic noise which seemed like an attempt to crow the indians who crowded the hut laughed and dr driven was so indignant at their heartlessness that he seized a club and drove them all out of doors an old naked african who had been a slave at belize and had lost his language without acquiring much of any other returned with a bunch of feathers which he wished to stick in the captain's nose and set fire to saying it was the remedy of his country but the doctor showed him his stick and he retreated the convulsions continued for three hours, during which time the doctor considered the captain's situation very critical. The old woman persisted that the devil was in him and would not give him up and that he must die, and I could not but think of his young wife, who was sleeping a few miles off, unconscious of the calamity that threatened her. The fit was brought on, as the doctor said, by anxiety and distress of mind occasioned by his unfortunate voyage, and particularly by the mutiny of his crew. At eleven o'clock he fell asleep, and now we learned the cause of the strange noise which had affected us so unpleasantly. Tom was just preparing to go on board the vessel when the African ran down to the shore and told him that the captain was at the hut, drunk. Tom, being himself in that state, felt it was his duty to look after the captain. But he had just bought a parrot, for which he had paid a dollar, and, afraid to trust him in other hands, hauled his baggy shirt a foot more out of his trousers, and thrust the parrot into his bosom, almost smothering it with his neckcloth. The parrot, 
indignant at this confinement, was driving his beak constantly into Tom's breast, which was scarified and covered with blood, and once when Tom thought it was going too far, he put his hand inside and pinched it, which produced the extraordinary sounds we had heard. In a little while Tom and Darkey got the Indians to relieve them, and went out to drink the captain's health. On their return they took their places on the ground, one on each side of their commander. I threw myself into the broken hammock, and Dr. Driven, charging them, if the captain awoke, not to say anything that could agitate him, went off to another hut. It was not long before the captain, raising his head, called out, "'What the devil are you doing with my legs?' which was answered by Tom's steady cry, "'Hold on, Darkey!' Darkey and an Indian were holding the captain's legs, two Indians his arms, and Tom was spread over his body. The captain looked perfectly sensible and utterly amazed at being pinned to the ground. "'Where am I?' said he. Tom and Darkey had agreed not to tell him what had happened." but after the most extraordinary lying on the part of Tom, while the captain was looking at him and us in utter amazement, the poor fellow became so entangled that, swearing the doctor might stay and tell his own stories, he began where he and Darkey came in and found the captain kicking in the hammock, and the captain was given to understand that if it had not been for him and Darkey, he would have kicked his own brains out. I relieved Tom's story from some obscurity, and a general and noisy conversation followed, which was cut short by poor Captain Diariarte, who had not had a wink of sleep all night, and begged us to give him a chance. In the morning, while I was taking chocolate with Dr. Driven, the mate came to the hut with the mutinous American sailor in the custody of four soldiers to make a complaint to me. The sailor was a young man of twenty-eight, short, well-made, and very good-looking, and his name was Jemmy. He too complained to me, wanted to leave the brig, and said that he would stop on a barren rock in the midst of the ocean rather than remain on board. I told him I was sorry to find an American sailor a ringleader in mutiny, and represented to him the distress and danger in which it had placed the captain. Dr. Driven had had some sharp passages with him on board the brig, and after a few words started up and struck him. Jemmy fell back in time to avoid the full blow, and as if by no means unused to such things, continued to fall back and ward off. But when pressed too hard he broke loose from the soldiers and tore off his jacket for a regular fight. I had no idea of favoring a mutinous sailor but still less of suffering an American to be maltreated by odds, and hauled off the soldiers. In a moment the doctor's passion was over, and he discontinued his attack, whereupon Jemmy surrendered himself to the soldiers, who carried him, as I supposed, to the guardhouse. I waited a little while, and going down saw Jemmy sitting on the ground in front of the quartel, with both legs in the stocks above the knees. He was keenly alive to the disgrace of his situation, and my blood boiled. 
I hurried to the captain of the port and complained warmly of his conduct as high-handed and insufferable, and insisted that Jemmy must be released, or I would ride to San Salvador on the instant and make a complaint against him. Dr. Driven joined me, and Jemmy was released from the stocks, but put under guard in the quartel. This will probably never reach the eyes of any of his friends, but I will not mention his name. He was from the little town of Esopus on the Hudson. In 1834, he sailed from New York in the sloop of war Peacock for the Pacific Station, was transferred to the North Carolina, and regularly discharged at Valparaiso, entered the Chilean naval service, and after plenty of fighting and no prize money, shipped on board this brig. I represented that he was liable to be tried for mutiny, and had only escaped the stocks by my happening to be at the port, that I could do nothing more for him, and he might be kept on shore till the vessel sailed, and carried on board in irons. It was a critical moment in the young man's life, and as one destitute of early opportunities, and whom necessity had probably doomed to a wayward life, and moreover as a countryman, I was anxious to save him from the effects of headstrong passion. The captain said he was the best sailor on board, and as he was short of hands, I procured from him a promise that, if Jemmy would return to his duty, he would take no notice of what had passed, and would give him his discharge at the first port where he could procure a substitute. Fortunately, in the afternoon, Captain de Iriarte was sufficiently recovered to sail, and before going on board my vessel, I took Jemmy to his. She was the dirtiest vessel I ever saw, and her crew a fair sample of the villainous sailors picked up in the ports of the Pacific. Among them, and as bad as any in appearance, was another countryman, Jemmy's American accomplice. I did not wonder that Jemmy was discontented. I left him on board in a bad condition, but unfortunately I afterward heard of him in a worse. A few strokes of the oar brought me on board our vessel, and as before with the evening breeze we got under way. The vessel in which I embarked was called La Cosmopolita. She was a Golet brig, and the only vessel that bore on the Pacific the Central American flag. She was built in England for a collier, and called the Britannia. By some accident she reached the Pacific Ocean, was bought by the state of San Salvador when at war with Guatemala, and called by that state's Indian name of Cuscatlan. Afterward she was sold to an Englishman, who called her Eugenia, and by him to Captain de Ariarte, who called her La Cosmopolita. My first night on board was not particularly agreeable. I was the only cabin passenger, but besides the bugs that always infest an old vessel, I had in my berth mosquitoes, spiders, ants, and cockroaches. Yet there was no part of my tour upon which I look back with so much quiet satisfaction as this voyage on the Pacific. I had on board Gil Blas and Don Quixote in the original, and all day I sat under an awning, 
my attention divided between them and the great range of gigantic volcanoes which stud the coast before this became tedious we reached the gulf of papagayo the only outlet by which the winds of the atlantic pass over to the pacific the dolphin the most beautiful fish that swims played under our bows and stern and accompanied us slowly alongside but the sailors had no respect for his golden back the mate a murderous young frenchman stood for hours with a harpoon in his hand drove it into several and at length brought one on board the king of the sea seemed conscious of his fallen state his beautiful colors faded and he became spotted and at last heavy and lusterless like any other dead fish we passed in regular succession the volcanoes of san salvador san vicente san miguel telega momotombo managua nindiri nasaya and nicaragua each one a noble spectacle and all together forming a chain with which no other in the world can be compared indeed this coast has well been described as bristling with volcanic cones for two days we lay with sails flapping in sight of cape blanco the upper headland of the gulf of nicoya on the afternoon of the thirty-first we reached the gulf on a line with the point of the cape was an island of rock with high bare and precipitous sides and the top covered with verdure it was about sunset for nearly an hour the sky and sea seemed blazing with the reflection of the departing luminary and the island of rocks seemed like a fortress with turrets it was a glorious farewell view i had passed my last night on the pacific and the highlands of the gulf of nicoya closed around us early in the morning we had the tide in our favor and very soon leaving the main body of the gulf turned off to the right and entered a beautiful little cove forming the harbor of caldera in front was the range of mountains of aguacata on the left the old port of point arenas and on the right the volcano of san pablo on the shore was a long low house set on piles with a tile roof and near it were three or four thatched huts and two canoes we anchored in front of the houses and apparently without exciting the attention of a soul on shore all the ports of central america on the pacific are unhealthy but this was considered deadly i had entered without apprehension cities where the plague was raging but here as i looked ashore there was a death-like stillness that was startling to spare me the necessity of sleeping at the port the captain sent the boat ashore with my servant to procure mules with which i could proceed immediately to a hacienda two leagues beyond our boat had hardly started before we saw three men coming down to the shore who presently put off in a canoe met our boat turned her back and boarded us themselves they were two paddles and a soldier the latter of whom informed the captain that by a late decree no passenger was permitted to land without the special permission of the government for which it was necessary to send an application to the capital and wait on board for an answer 
he added that the last vessel was full of passengers who were obliged to remain twelve days before the permission was received i was used to vexations in travelling but i could not bear this quietly the captain made a bold attempt in my favour by saying that he had no passengers that he had on board the minister of the united states who was making the tour of central america and who had been treated with courtesy in guatemala and san salvador and that it would be an indignity for the government of costa rica not to permit his landing he wrote to the same effect to the captain of the port who on the return of the soldier came off himself i was almost sick with vexation and the captain of the port finished two glasses of wine before i had the courage to introduce the subject he answered with great courtesy regretting that the law was imperative and that he had no discretion i replied that the law was intended to prevent the entrance of seditious persons emigres and expulsados from other states who might disturb the peace of costa rica but that it could not contemplate a case like mine at the same time laying great stress upon my official character fortunately for me he had a high sense of the respect due to that character and though holding a petty office had a feeling of pride that his state should not be considered wanting in courtesy to an accredited stranger for a long time he was at a loss what to do but finally after much deliberation he requested me to wait till morning when he could dispatch a courier to advise the government of the circumstances and would take upon himself the responsibility of permitting me to land fearful of some accident or some change of purpose and anxious to get my feet on shore i suggested that in order to avoid travelling in the heat of the day it would be better to sleep on shore to be ready for an early start to which he assented in the afternoon the captain took me ashore at the first house we saw two candles lighted to burn at the body of a dead man all whom we saw were ill and all complained that the place was fatal to human life in fact it was almost deserted and notwithstanding its advantages as a port government a few days afterward issued an order for breaking it up and removing back to the old port of point arenas the captain was still suffering from fever and ague and would not on any account remain after dark i was so rejoiced to find myself on shore that if i had met a death's head at every step it would hardly have turned me back the last stranger at the port was a distinguished american his name was handy i had first heard of him at the cape of good hope hunting giraffes afterward met him in new york and regretted exceedingly to miss him here he had traveled from the united states through texas mexico and central america with an elephant and two dromedaries as his file leaders the elephant was the first ever seen in central america and i often heard of him in the pueblos under the name of el demonio six days before mr handy with his interesting family had embarked for peru and perhaps he is at this moment crossing the pampas to brazil end of section twenty